Well, good day. I'm Mark Sylvester, your host for this 805 Conversation, where we talk to fascinating people you'll want to know better. If this is your first time listening, thanks for coming. The 805 Conversations podcast is produced every other week. Please subscribe so you don't miss any upcoming shows. Our show is sponsored by California Lutheran University School of Management and Tolman and Weicker Insurance Services. Thanks to them both for their support and continued encouragement. And thanks to my podcasting partner and co-host, Patrick, from Pull String Press for this great studio. Hey, Patrick, good oh, morning. Good morning, Mark. How are you today? I, I am a proud father of a beautiful child who uh, spent most of last night staring at me. <laughs> oh, then there's our background music. That's how you know I'm on top of my game. Exactly. <laughs> I, I love that. And our listener knows that. Uh, how, how old is Henri? Uh, Henry is uh, four weeks, two days. Oh, my gosh. And how many minutes? <laughs> if I knew that, I would I would have got some sleep last night. I know. I, I love that. And I would love to introduce you to... a old friend of mine and longtime friend, I would say, uh, Joanne Kuchera-Morin. And she does a lot out at UCSB, but I met her when she was the professor of media arts and technology, though now yeah. she is embedded, I like the word embedded, <laughs> at the California Nanosystems Institute at UCSB as the director of Allosphere Research. Mm-hmm. That doesn't even fit on a business card, Joanne. It doesn't. Absolutely. <laughs> That's the problem with being a media artist, right? <laughs> welcome. Welcome. Thank you. When did, when did you, what was that first thing where you noticed that you were an artist and not anything else? I mean, because that's just part of who you are. When, right. You, you tell us the story when you figured it out. I figured it out when I walked into my first music theory course and wrote my first 5-1 chord progression, and I knew I was going to be a composer, and that was it. <laughs> How so, old were you? I was uh, 19. Had you had any music, d- had done music before that? Sung in rock and roll garage bands, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in um, Palm Beach County, Florida. Do you still have family there? Um, I have my sister lives in Key West. Ooh, yeah. how's she doing? Um, getting over Irma at this point and trying to maintain control down there. Um, Is she still there? She's still there, yeah. And her husband actually stayed in the house uh, when oh the hurricane gosh. struck. Uh, and he said it was a rocky ride. But he was glad he did because he was stuffing clothes in the um air conditioning in all the doors when the when the back flow came yeah, right. uh, but we didn't get they got really bad in Wilma I mean the the tidal flow took their whole car out and it went all the way up to the second story of their home oh, at geez. least they didn't have that kind of a flood um, with this one which was really good so they're just trying to but my my brother-in-law was cutting a palm tree and did fall off a ladder and did break his ribs and oh so you know I've got to check to see how things were oh going. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and then when did you come to California? Oh, I came to California in 1984 when I got my first position as an assistant professor at University of California Santa Barbara. So you've been working with gauchos a long time. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Well, wow. and what was that first position? Um, it was as assistant professor of music composition in the music department at UCSB. Hmm. 
And mm. I'm still 25% in the music department at UCSB. What was the last thing you wrote? Um, actually, my newest work, which has taken me 33 years to build the <laughs> instrument that I have in the Slacker. California Nano Systems <laughs> Institute, um, is um, my newest media composition, which is uh, called Probably Possibly. And it is a immersive virtual quantum synthesizer that I made with my Kavli theoretical physicist colleague, Professor Luca Politi. And it splits the electron of a hydrogen-like atom into superposition and goes into different orbital states. See, that's what I'm talking about. (laughs) I play it. (laughs) We're going to need to have a transcript of that, Patrick, (laughs) just to parse that sentence. I I followed it. You didn't follow that? (laughs) As I said when we did this in the Moxie, the electron's like, you know, a little wave in the ocean. And you're just trying to follow it around to find where the currents are. (laughs) That's what's happening. So anyway... Huh. There was just yesterday they, they were they were talking to on NPR they were talking to uh, uh, the the physicist who won the Nobel Peace Prize or the Nobel Prize in Physics this year and he was talking about how he had recorded a black two black holes uh, mm. colliding together and he makes the he plays the sound for them and <coughs> he says of course there's no medium in space to to make this music travel so <laughs> this is something that we've created here on Earth to it's vision audio visualization right. yeah because it's what you do is you take everything what's this is what I learned as a music composer of acoustic instruments it's all sine waves right right it's just waves that are combined and so what you do is you just take them and you drop them mathematically down in the audio and visual domain so you can see them and hear them and then it's really cool when the physicist goes oh my god that's what I see in my mind when oh I see god. that equation mm-hmm. and points at mm-hmm. it and you go mm-hmm. can we have a dialogue mm-hmm. now mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. I've been so stupid for so many years when it comes to all these STEM guys I'm trying to prove that A has something to offer so STEAM right for those yes. who don't know so that's STEM right. is um, it's science technology engineering and mathematics and that's what we're constantly told all of our children should major in if they want to survive and what's happening is we're losing arts we're losing culture we're losing humanities in our society but it isn't what people think people think oh that's a hundred years from now so that we have a civilization Uh, uh-uh. we know how to map complex mathematics in time and space and when it comes to big data and visualization and multimodal representation they should be talking to us We know how to make that stuff happen. And that puts us in a real world place. And it also allows us to make a language out of this complex stuff that people can see and hear and play with and kind of democratizes the whole playing field, right? Educational reform, going out to the public, maker spaces, and uniting the community to help a system that really is in trouble right now. When you were talking about being able to see something for the first time. We, uh, and you and I met when I was still at Wavefront. That's right. And I remember we had a whole project on data visualization because one of our guys said, you know, the world isn't just polygons. The world is made <laughs> up of, you know, non-structured volumetric That's data. Right. And there's just, there's so much of it. And I'm going back 30 years now, right? I hear you. And we had a professor from, a researcher from Harvard come out and he had been studying the um, Gulf of Mexico and the temperature climb in the water and things called thermoclines, which is where the water is different uh, degrees in two pools mm-hmm. and where it form, where those pools meet forms a barrier that sonar can't uh, pass through. Mm-hmm. And so he studied all that, but he shows up with the piles of green bar Excel spreadsheets. <laughs> yep. <laughs> right? right? Yes, yes, yes. And yes. we showed him a picture of the Gulf for the first time. He had not seen it this way. And he 
literally jumped up out of his chair and he goes, do you guys see that? Well, yeah, yeah, of course <laughs> yeah, I see what? that, yeah, right? Yeah, what's the deal? And it, it changed his, his whole thing. So which leads me to the allosphere. So describe what the allosphere is and tell me, because 30 years ago or 25 years ago, we were talking about you building this. Mm -hmm. What was the vision then? And then where, where is that now? I think the vision has always been the same. The path has been really hard. Because I'm a composer, and because when I used a computer to do anything without acoustic instrumentalist or with them, everything has to happen in real time to hear audio. Everything, latency and jitter are our most important factors. So if I could build the system that would allow me to use this as not, a lot of people think that these are immersive and virtual environments like caves, etc. But I wasn't building that, I was building an instrument. I was going to build an instrument that this thing was, if you think about the computers currently, they're server farms and they're in huge warehouses. Yep. What's the display? The display is like you're looking on a screen this big. People are going to want to pull terabytes of data out of the cloud and they're going to want to interact with it in real time. And the interesting thing is because, you know, people say, well, you've left your field. I said, no, I haven't. I've made a big performance instrument mm -hmm. out of the allosphere. So you've got this display, a three-story, it's not a sphere. It's two tilt-dome hemispheres on their side with a, with a flat um, region in the middle. It's a, it's a capsule because you can't project sound in a sphere without echo. And this is so that I could have a pristine um, um, display area instrument in a near-to-anechoic chamber, an echo-free chamber, that would allow me to be able to dial in any frequency relationship of any data set and bring it into the audio and the visual and the interactive domain. Bring data to human scale, stuff that we typically cannot see, stuff we cannot hear that maps right into what we can see in here. But what's the continuum? I mean, I am, <laughs> my material scientists laugh because they go, okay, you really think you're going to conquer what we call the tyranny of scales? And that's- The whole, the tyranny of scales. Yes. What they talk about is what happens at the atomic level in the quantum world doesn't necessarily match up to things that happen when you go up into the classical world of how things organize. At the atomic level, they need to know when they're mixing goopy goop together that three meters out, that material's going to bend if they put these atoms with that, those atoms. That's what they call the tyranny of scales. The metric scales of nanometers to micrometers doesn't line up with the material figure of merit scales of when they change how they morph. This is so, like, like a piece of steel that when it gets long enough, it bends but retains its, its shape? That's right, exactly. So they're making right now materials that are still out of metal alloys. And for instance, one of the things that we do, and you're going to probably wonder, why do artists want to do this? Well, I'll tell you why. They think we're working for them, but they're working for us, even though we're not <laughs> getting paid. That's the one thing I do want to say. We are not getting paid for this. But right now, I've, we've got it to the point of where we've made our own open source software. It's a visual, oral, interactive um, uh, C++ code library that will allow us to take any data into a general purpose volume renderer and texture map, do ISO surfacing, be able to display that information and be able to go in and interact with it in real time multiple users with wireless devices, right? And just what you're saying, there's data you can't see. So on top of that, put charts and graphs. Okay, so let's give an example. Our guys 
in the Nanosystems Institute, our structural materials researchers are wondering why these nuclear reactors they've been making for all these years um, aren't rupturing, <laughs> okay? And only now do they have microscopes that can tell them why certain reactors haven't ruptured. So what they do is they take a piece of nucleated steel that has maintained its integrity. This reactor didn't bombard. They take it into their microscopes to look to figure out, okay, what's going on? So they take this piece of steel that's a thousand times thinner than a hair into their transmission electron. Oh, oh. a thousand <laughs> times thinner than a hair. A human hair. Very small. Very small. We're at the nano sign. Right, right. No, you're at the nano system. I got it. Okay. So they they take this into this thing called a transmission electron microscope. It's able to analyze the material and see where there's voids, you know, where there's something going on in the structure, right? But they can't tell what the atoms are. And it's a non-destructive technique. So then if they want to find out, well... What atoms are near where these holes are? What's going on? Let's find out what's in there. They have to take that same piece of steel into a destructive um, technique microscope called the atom probe, which destroys it. It lasers it off, and it gets the point cloud coordinates of where each atom is. But they have to line these data sets up, okay? And their software that they have, once they take them off the microscopes and they voxelize it, put it into 3D pixels, um, puts artifacts in the data. Mm. So, Which has um, got to be infuriating. Right. It's hard for them. But at the same time, you know, they try to get a volume of data to see it. So what we do now is we're making our own open source software. So we can put any data set together with anything, right? So we take the data from their instruments, both the artifacted data and the raw data, bring it into our big display. This is a three- now, now I'm going to go back to big three stories tall. Right. So when you drive on to the west, the west end of campus, there's the, you're looking at the California Nanosystems Institute and right. that the big, the, the large facility on the right side of that, that huge cube inside of that is the allosphere. That's right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you've got this metal bridge in the middle of this cylinder. Okay. It's 34 feet long. Seven feet wide. That's the sweet spot. That's where we're not going to have any artifacts. Okay. Well, we do have some artifacts being non Now, you've, you've been up for 15 years? Been up where? The allosphere is <laughs> okay, okay. Sorry. Sorry. I've the been, allosphere. Yeah, I have been for a number yes. of years. The allosphere has been in, per, in, in yeah, operation. It, it was actually, it's been 10 years, actually, because we completed the building in 2006. The right. sphere was completed in February 2007. I remember these dates well. So um, the reason I ask is, how did you know, because you were so oddly specific about seven feet wide. I mean, you had to construct this thing. It's substantially yeah. large. It's very big. Yes. Had you modeled that somehow? Well, see, you know, I was chief scientist of digital media for the University of California for five years, okay? I created a multi-million dollar sponsored research program for the University of California and made research grants. So I was working with all of these, you know, um, engineers and all these scientists across the nine UC campuses at that time and three national labs. And I started seeing back then the work that people were doing with virtual reality, with information technology. Why were caves dying? Okay. And it, uh, for our listener who 
is listening to us from Finland. Right. Doesn't know what you <laughs> mean by cave. Yeah, because we're in 40. Yeah, 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 we, spelunking. Yes. We're not allowed to spelunk anymore. Oh, my no, God. They're all no. gone. <laughs> Tell them cave is C-A-V-E, which stands That's for. Right. Oh, gosh. I don't even know what it stands for. Computer <laughs> okay. Assisted Visualization Environment. See, he knows it. I didn't even know it. I was hey, there with the first ones, like it. you were. Okay, so, but I okay. never knew what it meant. Remember, that's what I'm it a means. composer, and yeah. for 10 bucks, I'll take the week off. <laughs> <laughs> so this thing was a thing that people went into, which was like an environment, yeah, and exactly. it could make a virtual world, okay? <clears throat> no headset. No, um, no headset at that time, but then, you know, now tracking. So you've got right. one person right. that right. has the ideal scene, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. And what seemed to be happening is to be able to use that, people weren't thinking of these as instruments. They were thinking of these as environments. Right. And they only served a certain purpose. And it seemed as though caves kind of were very good at CAD stuff, and if you wanted to do a jet engine or training, something. Military training. Tra- military training. But, and, but passive, like, like acquisition by the, the user, right? Like we would go in, experience it. as the, we, It was experiential, and then we'd walk back. Right. That's right, exactly. Right. And maybe one person could be having controls eventually that could do something. Over a right. pre-programmed system That's that was right. finite. Right. That's right. Exactly. exactly. You got it. Okay. So I'm sitting here saying, okay, if we want, you know, because I could see what was happening with VR, and I thought how important it was to be immersed. At that time, there were two of these things called tilt dome hemispheres, and they failed. There was one at UK, university um, uh, in the UK at Teesside, and um, it was 10 meters in diameter. And it was almost kind of like this VR ride where one person would sit in the seat and the mm. other people would kind of watch. But supposedly the immersive experience of 10 meters in diameter being five meters away from that screen gave you enough distance to be to see your data but gave you enough immersion that you weren't like in a planetarium so Mm. in a planetarium it's too big okay Mm -hmm. and even though and planetarium typically aren't stereo but even when they start to try to go stereo they're too big for that kind of immersive experience that we were trying to make in making an instrument. You, you said it failed, but did it did it fail because the, because the people who were funding it lost faith in its ability to be relevant? I believe so. I mean, it was really used for an arts and entertainment thing. It was oh. really something where people would go in, and it was a venue again. A, Primarily passive venue. A novelty. Where one person, you know, they did like some of the um, um, things that they would do would be, you know, riding on a roller coaster. So everybody could feel like they were riding on this roller coaster, right? Except we were on Mars. Right, exactly. So it's that kind of thing and works great in amusement parks. But if it's not a tool for innovation, then nobody's going to hold on to it. Well, this is it. And what I saw was the most important thing was not the structure so much, but the software infrastructure Mm -hmm. that needed to be made. Mm And the which I, didn't exist. Which didn't exist at all. And, you know, I have, I've had nothing past algebra 2 in high school and I don't know a programming language. So, you know, so dummy didn't know what she was getting into. And I and I probably would have never did it if I did. If, if only you'd known to stop asking questions right. and looking for smart Especially people. Especially when I wasn't getting any answers, yeah, you know. Right. Especially when there it was and it was built and I was left high and dry. And people were like, people that I thought were knowledgeable were going, we don't know what to do with this thing. I'm like, OMG. You're kidding. Oh, my really? God. It yes. opened and everybody was like, well, now we've got the, the thing. How do we make the elephant dance? 
yeah. Okay. Call the <laughs> artist. That's it. So I ended up, you know, with I was given like a twenty thousand dollar operational support budget. Told oh my I God. built it. Now I should be able to raise the money to equip it, and I did. Oh. And um, it's been an interesting thing about you know about UCSB is it's highly interdisciplinary. There's no other place in the world I think a composer would be in the California Nano Systems Institute, and. Um, and because I didn't get, because of the budget cuts, the type of funding I needed to actually equip the building, it was, in a sense, a really good thing because we were able to build it out. So it was my graduate students, myself, and my two stalwart research staff that I stole from my other facility, Center my Create, my Center for Research in Electronic Art Technology. And we just built it out. We started with two projectors on one side. And, you know, I even had some of my computer science colleagues going, this isn't going to work. It's not going to work. I mean, you're non-tracked and you're in a sphere. It's going to be too distorted. Like, I just have a feeling. (laughs) You were working on feelings? Well, I was working on the fact that we are 3D creatures. And what we know better than anybody is perceptual awareness. Mm. We know. We spend all of our life. We, We go to... See, this is what people don't understand. Music and art in the grade schools shouldn't be somebody tooting on a horn and painting an apple. Mm -hmm. We've got to get back to the mathematics of these things. And believe me, if we start applying this math to music (laughs) and art, these students are going to love math like they wouldn't believe. Do you think it's ironic, though, that because you just within five minutes ago said Algebra, that was it. That was your highest order. And now you're bathing in math. That's all right. The time. <laughs> <laughs> Listener, you should see her, her face. Eye winking. <laughs> no, it, it's just, um, but there's, a, there's a, an <coughs> elegance and a loveliness to that and an order to it. And, and all of those things that you get from math, which help you do what you want to do. Absolutely, because music is all math. And what exactly. I did learn is even though I didn't have Algebra 2 past high school, I was working with stochastic laws and probability theory in my Ph.D. at the Conservatory at Eastman when I was looking at the works of famous composers like Yanis Zanagis and the a big mid-serialists in the uh, 20th century were all doing um, um, set and group theory, and I learned, you know, oh, I'm going to transpose this chord to here. Well, that's what the mathematicians call a translation <laughs> and a rotation. Mm-hmm. It's all the same. But I was twiddling notes, and I didn't know until I got into the gnarly math at the Ph.D. level. And you went into this lateral universe. That's right. And the idea is I still don't know it the way I need to know it, but my students do. Right. And that's what's so interesting. Well, that's what you know is how to, how to have, have a specialist. Oh, you yeah. know, find yourself a specialist and then you can do lots of things. And my students are real hybrids. The, the program I created in 1999 that now exists in the California Nanosystems Institute along with our Digital Media Center is Media Arts and Technology, graduate program, music, visual arts, computer science, and electrical engineering. Students come in sometimes um, at the PhD level with two or three different master's degrees. Some of them have been out in industry, they've been out in academia, they're done with their discipline, and they're coming back for something else that's going to help them unite application. So they're absolutely incredible. I couldn't have done anything without them. You know, I'm like the conductor, and I tell them to do this stuff that's physically impossible, and I'll come in the next day, and it's done. It's just absolutely unbelievable. Give me an an example of one of the early projects that you visualized. Okay. Actually, the very first project that we did was my colleague Marcus Novak, who's a visual artist. He was at UCLA with one of his colleagues that's a brain 
uh, doctor. And um, we were able to get functional MRI data of Marcos's brain while he was going into an fMRI machine and watching a video mm. and registering his blood density every time he saw something he thought was beautiful. So we called it beauty in the brain, and we were trying to see if we could see what parts of the brain were getting lighting up a, according to what he thought beauty was. And so this is the neuropsychologist are trying to figure out brain function and how the brain operates and what parts of the brain. So we've, we've looked at fMRI F MRIs, right. data uh, a lot, but not three-dimensionally, or in some three-dimensional environments we have. And it, it, you know, it's, it's intriguing, it's interesting, and we learn something. Tell us, tell the listener what's different about the allosphere and inspecting that data and understanding that data and what that they learned that there was no other way to have learned it. Okay, uh, let's put it this way. I think that um, it deals with um, speed of discovery and comprehension because when our neuropsychologists are working in a functional MRI imaging lab, um, if they want to see a whole kind of structure of the brain, they're getting 2D slices of right. the brain On a data. normal patient, On a normal, day to day. Right, normal patient, okay? And then what they have to do is they've got to look through each of those 2D slices to try to get an idea of what the whole structure looks like. And then if they're trying to find blood density levels in that structure, they're looking through hundreds of pages of numbers, that tell them what the density is at a particular time, okay? Now, in the allosphere... In it sounds like leeches. <laughs> it is. <laughs> it sounds like you're oh, talking And about when I tell you what my material scientists do, you're really going to say, oh, my God, this is really bad. Um, and so, you know, so the idea is that, sure, they can put a 3D volume together on a computer terminal. That gets them closer to what they're doing. But the sense of immersion, being inside of the information, being able to go to exact particular point in the brain, bringing it up to human scale, so you're a centimeter and you're in there, and being able to take the data directly from the MRI and map it into software infrastructural meshes so that that brain now is just a mesh and if I put in a POTS model of a tumor growing in a particular point, I could see how that thing would transform. So it becomes virtual experimentation. That's what we want to think about. We want to think about right now the computational platform becomes a virtual experimentation instrument. That's why I built it in the California Nanosystems Institute because all of my experimentalists are in laboratories pushing lasers, mixing goop in, in vials of chemicals, right? Doing these experiments. And if they use the computer, they go out to a theoretical scientist with their calculations, give them a bunch of numbers and say, go calculate for me. Then that guy goes to a supercomputer and he's gone for like weeks, months, doing 12 spins. He comes back and typically the results don't work in the laboratory. So there's a misconnect between the experimentalist and the theorist. And I believe, it, just like in the olden days, how did we turn from analog to digital technologies, you know, in Bell Labs, right? How did we get to the point of the voices you hear really aren't the voices, are voices, but are synthesized, is that we brought in real people and we, um, they, they talked and sung.
tongue into microphones, and we took that apart. We analyzed it through mathematical formulas. We put them back together to see if they sounded the same, and then we took the voice out of it, and we put oscillators and noise generators in there to do the consonances and the vowels, and we made a real dynamically varying model based on the physical model, right? We need to do that now with our scientists. So I was telling my copy, <laughs> my materials. I'm sorry. Uh, there's just this moment where there's a certain moment where, where I, I have, you're talking about them like they're like they're these sad children. No, no, <laughs> I'm sorry. They're these not. Poor, these poor scientists. We need to help them. Us artists need to help them. They are, they are out there just beating their heads against this data and we need to come. We, we, they really need some help. Support your local scientists. They're struggling. They, they need creative thought. Well, in a way they do. I they mean, do. you they wouldn't do. know what it's like working at the atomic level. Uh, we're getting a sense right <laughs> yeah. now. Yeah. Right. I mean, I asked them, I go, what do you do when you make a material? You know, they go like, we go into our lab and we got vials of like nickel, tin and titanium, chemical liquids. We take it into a little printer, these little circles, and we pour them in and we put them in the oven and we bake it. And I said, then what do you do? He goes, we take it out and we do characterization. I go, what's characterization? We look at it. If it's black, it's going to be a semiconductor, and so we're going to do diffraction on it. We're going to do further characterization. I just, I still, I feel like I'm just, I'm just kind of like they're they're so specific with what they're doing that the, that there's this little struggle where it's like, oh, did you know that if I flip this switch over here, the lights come on in here? I don't know if you knew that there's there's other ways to to investigate. I think, and this is the biggest problem with where we are right now with very hard experimental work that's dealing with lasers and mm -hmm. atoms and where we are with information technology. And what's happening is the worlds are going like this. Well, I mean, now, the, so our radio audience <laughs> oh, yeah, didn't see that. Right. <laughs> so help us out here. They're, di they're diverging. They're diverging in opposite directions. So the information technologists, most people that don't work with virtual reality, think it's friggin' sci-fi, right? right? And they don't think that you can do anything normal with it. And no, the it's problem a, is it's that a jack-off machine. Right? <coughs> and the problem for? is we've got a lot of artists out there doing some yeah. pretty weird, funky things, okay? And for me, to tell you the truth, I mean, this is what's hard for me. It ruins my credibility to the scientist. Yeah. If I'm trying to tell the scientists that I have a way to visualize and sonify their data so they can find something in their data, then if somebody's out there <coughs> fertilizing a dog, you know, their egg with a dog's you know, I mean, yeah. doing weird things like that. I believe, I believe the study you're talking about is a monkey. There was a monkey. Right. So the, she was, yeah. 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 So, I mean, it's just, and it's not that, you know, our, our side is really pushing the envelope on transhumanism, right? Mm -hmm. Their side, some of them don't even know what the computational platform can do for them. And to them, it's like ludicrous. I mean, I have some experimentalists tell me that, you know, computers can't generate real data. And they're worried about more artifacts being in their data. Every time you transduce information from one form to the other, like they take the metal and they put it through the microscopes, that brings artifacts. They voxelize it, that brings artifacts. They bring it in the computer and more artifacts. And I'm trying to tell them, no, you can't. You've got to think about this as a brain now. And that this brain can be hooked up and it can do other things. It can do simulations on top of this. It can do calculations. It can take numbers of streams of data. When you go into your lab, you're working with one figure of merit at a time. You're looking at the Seebeck coefficients, how much heat there is, what's the time. We can do all of those things together. And especially if you keep your information in a database 
and we can start to mine that data and take that to the next level. So these are the things I think are really, really are important right now. Uh, and one of the things that's very difficult for me, you know, I mean, you know, we're really misunderstood by a lot of individuals on both sides as to what we're doing in there. And, um, and uh, you know, as a result, we're not an immersive virtual environment. Um, it's very difficult for me. You know, I, I really have no permanent funding for the Allosphere, so I raise all the money out of research funds out of uh, also foundation funding, because my idea is this, and this is another thing that's important. Why did I build the Allosphere so big? Why am I working with these immersive technologies? Do I realize that these are now new instruments and platforms that our students are going to be doing all of their work on? The computer is here to stay, and I don't care what content area you're in, you're gonna be using the computational platform. You're gonna be immersed in your data, um, it's just going to happen, and there's going to be a point when the connection between the virtual and the real are going to become very, very transparent. And we need to be able to make systems that can handle that kind of structure, that kind of data, and those things need to be able to be scaled down to Raspberry Pis, to small mm -hmm. micro devices so that we can get it out to the public. And if, the, if foundations and nonprofits are going to give money to the institution, the institution has a responsibility to bring that back out to the public. We can do this. But is, that's territorial. You're talking about the territorialization of like the entire campus and, and everybody's everybody's little pot of like, I've got this slice and I'm not sharing it with, a, a you know, I'm not access. I'm not giving out access. The idea is once we realize that we're going to be a lot stronger if we give it away and mm -hmm. we work together as a team, the better off we're going to be. One of the things that I learned from looking at my big experimentalist, my material scientist, my physicist, you know, they built the big CERN super collider and they got, what, 3,000 scientists involved around this instrument, working on different projects but working together as a team. When you look at who we are out there in the world, when you look at what we stand for as artists trying to partner and bring our stuff out to the world, we're not organized in any way. I know that the people would love to help us, and I feel that we can go out to communities. And not only that, we can bring the work that I'm doing with the scientists now. They understand, you know, they're starting to understand what we have to offer. And they're also starting, you know, they're ready to come out to give their information to people. The problem is it's too hard for them. You know, when you sit down and talk to a physicist and he starts talking quantum mechanics, you're out there. Right, but right. if I make a mathematics where somebody can see it and hear it. All the difference in the world. That's it. This I mean, is that, was the, um, that was the whole core idea of, of Wavefront, wasn't it? That's it. Right? Well, Absolutely. Our, our slogan was, see what you think. This is it. Absolutely. You guys started the whole thing. I mean, Maya is an absolutely incredible package <laughs> that's still out there that is out right? there being used. Crazy. And is going to be pushed into the real-time domain. Mark and I had a moment over Maya when I first met Mark, and, and he was explaining to me, like, blah, 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 blah. He's telling me what his life, and then he goes, oh, Maya. And I'm like, well, shut, wait, slow down. Because I remember being a young guy in LA and watching a Mayo demo in, in a room full of like a thousand people and hearing a thousand computer geeks just go <gasps> when like 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 Maya came off on its first demo we were all just like devastated we were just like this this is not an advancement we this still use Maya for modeling and for doing prototyping that we need to do and a lot of our um, a lot of our um, experimentalists want us first to actually make videos of what their works are to do render stuff 
And the interesting thing is, you know, it's difficult for us because we're not doing animation. But it does allow us to understand their story first so that when we go in and we start making the software to be able to manipulate their data, we know what they're looking for. So, Mm. you know, it all... (laughs) You know, it's interesting you said story because I, I know that we... As, the, as that scientist there, um, there's a story there. That data is telling a story, but they're not storytellers. I mean, that's not, they're not trained as that. That's right. Where pairing up with an artist who is a storyteller possibly helps them craft that narr- craft a narrative. That's it. First off, craft a narrative, both visually and sonically, that helps a layperson, a civilian, understand like, don't you know what this means? No, I don't know what this means. That's tell, right. tell me. Tell me. Like, or show me, right? Well, this but it still has to be intelligent enough to draw in collaborators from, yep. you know yep. what I mean? Like, yep. it can't yep. be so dumbed down that it's, that it, you yep. know. And that's what's so interesting when we work. Like, I've been working for five years with the Kabli Institute for uh, Theoretical Physicists. Love those guys. Uh, Luca, yeah. And yeah, yeah, Professor yeah. Luca Polita. We made, yeah. like I said, this quantum synthesizer. Yeah. How do we work together? How do I, as an artist that know nothing about quantum mechanics, work intelligently? with this physicist. Well, usually have a couple students between me and him. However, we sit down and we do exactly what you said. I say, what's your narrative? What are you looking for in the data? What are you looking for? And he's like, well, we're trying to figure out when this electron, it can be in different orbitals at the same time. It can be in different places at once. So think about this. And then he'll start to have to explain it to me alliteratively. Think about this as the ocean. Okay, Mm. and he'll say, think of the ocean when it's really calm. Okay, but then there are currents in that ocean. And then all of a sudden the waves will show you what those currents are. And that's what this electron is doing in this quantum cloud. It's making currents and it's moving around. And we're trying to figure out where it is. Right. And I'm like, okay, cool. Okay. Now I know. Now I know. Okay, what this is. So now immediately I have a visual in my mind. The structure's got to be the quantum cloud, whatever in the heck that is. Okay, how are we going to visualize it? Who knows? That's when we sit down and we look at the math. And there are different ways we can visualize it. No, no, it's probably just the first one you think of. (laughs) Just just go with your first inclination. (laughs) Certainly don't try a couple. (laughs) You you, you said early on, and I think the theme for me is this, um, the speed of discovery and comprehension, right, so that we can get things. You said early in the very beginning it was about removing latency and everything is about this speed. And so I I get that. So So now a researcher doesn't wait six months. They, you know, it's in six milliseconds. They're like... Oh, that aha moment. That's right. Give me uh, an example, a recent one, right? You've been up for 10 years where there was an assumption. You walk in with a thesis and you find out it wasn't that at all. It was actually something else that they only discovered because they saw it in the allosphere and that fundamentally changed their reality, if you will. And the interesting thing is we're not there yet. I mean, that's the hard thing. I mean, we haven't... I want you to be there. We do. We want to be. It's taken us 10 years to build the software infrastructure using the content to get to the point of maybe having those aha moments. Now, the, the, the project that we're working on with the nucleated steel was one of those times, in a sense. We had the microscope um, specialist on the bridge of the allosphere and the, and the companies, the industries. And we had brought this piece of nucleated steel, which was a thousand times thinner than the hair. It was 34 foot high, you know, 10 In the feet sphere, looking wide, at it. In the sphere. Right. 
and we were turning around and we have wireless gloves that we can control things and we were nice, letting the scientists nice. turn this thing around and they turned it around and then as soon as they got to this one point everybody went oh and so you know we're sitting there going what's the big deal what are you guys looking at and they're like you see how all these everything's lined up here and we said, yeah. And they go, that's the grain boundaries. And we go, well, what are those? Right, and they right. said, the grain boundaries are where when you're mixing different materials together, or even the same material, these materials are in like grains, like crystals, right? And, you know, you've seen a crystal and it'll be, it'll be big and then it'll have parts that go off. Sure. Those are grain boundaries. So the grains are going in different directions. And so it's almost like sewing. Where's your pants going to rip? At the seams, right? The oh. grain boundaries are oh. really important. What you now know. I now know, yes. yes. They knew they were important. But they had not seen them. They had not seen it like that. And what they were looking for, what they were trying to figure out was this. They're starting to understand by now analyzing this piece of nucleated steel that what happens is that these grain boundaries eventually after so much nuclear, you know, nucleation hits this metal that helium bubbles form primarily at these grain boundaries and if these bubbles get too big they'll rupture but somehow certain metal atoms act like sponges and are just happen to go to those places before these the bubbles yes and they keep the bubbles at a certain size and so they're now looking at what metal alloys do this you know and they're starting to get an insight you know, even in their labs, but now we can start to verify because we can line these things up and they can see exactly which atom is controlling which. Don't you think bubble. you would have paid a little more attention in science class in ninth grade? <laughs> like I was really, I was over in the art class, then I come over to the science class, and and we would kind of like, I don't know, I I don't remember anything from science class in high school, and I feel like what you just described makes a ton of sense to me. I'm like, totally. oh, yeah. yeah. Okay, so certain yeah. alloys would, would, yeah. would capture the helium rather than cre create opportunities for expansion. Okay. Yeah. Well, that makes a ton of sense. <laughs> why, why the hell didn't they say that in the first place? Well, it's because we're talking in different languages, right? right? Yes. right. And right. so now right. what right. do we want to talk about with educational reform? We want, to talk, uh, we want to talk about something that's really important, learning by doing. Mm -hmm. You know, this is one of the things when you think about the formalities of, you know, where things go. I mean, experimentalists are kind of like us. They're in their labs and they're poking around and they don't know what they're going to find. Right? Oh, that's the best. That's best. That's it. Yeah. Absolutely. And the computational platform really is, serves the exact opposite purposes in a lot of ways. Sometimes, especially the big fight right now that I have with there's there's really a big fight when you think of artificial intelligence. Mm. You got a group of researchers that are saying the human needs to be out of the loop of computing, right? <laughs> okay? okay. Okay. We don't. We okay. get the human okay. out of there. Make the brain smarter and smarter. The heck with the human, right? We're the and artifacts. That's it. We're yes. the artifacts. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you know, that, that eventually, that, that's it. And so, but then there's this other side. Okay, I know that the computer can match patterns probably quicker than we can. But they, the computer doesn't know what's interesting to find in those patterns. Mm. And if the human... They, they it, haven't had the blues yet. <laughs> they have. They haven't had a terrible breakup. <laughs> you know, I bet that's why they call it. <laughs> yeah. no, uh, you know, th this is it. So, so the idea is, can we... 
allow those of us that are experimentalists. Uh, we're experimentalists as artists. I mean, the computer was the most horrendous thing that happened to me in the early 80s when I was a composer. And I was working with acoustic instruments and I could guilt an instrumentalist into playing anything. And then all of a sudden I had this thing that was doing everything completely precise and wasn't allowing me to have any <laughs> absolute freedom in how I would compose. And it just has taken a number of years for us to get to the point with music that you can pick up any device, whether it's a device you make or whether it's your violin, and you can play any computer. And ironically, now you're sitting inside a three-story computer. That's it. Doing that's, your work. That's my instrument. Think about this. That's my stage. Right. I'm inside now oh, my yeah. instrument, and I've got a whole group of ensembles performing and composing a multimedia work. And it can be a big nucleated data set, or it can be a- Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter what it is. Right. right. But what does that mean for us for artists? That means for the first time, when I wrote my tachyons about a particle that can move faster than the speed of light with string orchestras using set theory, the wrong mathematics, and animating, dreaming about this, and now 33 years later, I'm doing the time-dependent Schrodinger equation using quantum mechanics and getting as close to the ground truth principles of my art that I want it to be with the sciences informing me. I think future generations are going to look back on this conversation and say, wow, she was the one that got it going for us. <laughs> and, and they're going to thank you in abstentia. And I want to thank you now, <laughs> Joanne, for, for just, I love your, I've always, your energy has not waned at a bit. <laughs> Uh, I, I love that a lot, and our, our listener knows that it's at this time of the show that we try. I mean, we could talk for hours, but our listener won't listen for hours. So we, we have to put a bow around this thing, and we have to give it a name. So we, like, now, you did it, by the way, I'm going to link into your, you did a TED Talk, which we saw uh, you uh, in Long Beach give your TED Talk That's on the right. atmosphere back right in the right day. Right after Oliver Sox spoke. Yep. Uh, yeah, <laughs> right. Talk about fear. <laughs> What, what, stepping into the red circle doesn't matter what stage is that's a that's high stakes you know short form communication at its best we get to name this show and I, and I have a couple of uh, ideas but you get dibs on what you would like to call this episode so if someone's looking through our back catalog they may have come in through listening to somebody else mm -hmm. like we had a conversation on microspheres a couple weeks ago and they're like, that was interesting. They come on, what do I want to listen to next? What are we going to call this show? I don't know. <laughs> Tell me what you think it should be I called. I don't know. It's something around virtual experimentation, but I also like speed of discovery and comprehension. Well, what lot. about, what about you know, yeah, what about somehow combining those two things? <laughs> speed of discovery through virtual experimentation? I don't know. <laughs> I'm just thinking. That's my nice subtitle. Okay, so yeah, you got to figure it out. See, this is the hardest thing about me, trying to explain what I do. Well, you did a pretty good, Patrick, I think she did a great job. Yeah, she's a janitor up at UCSP, right? <laughs> <laughs> you got it. Yeah, she sweeps up some allosphere and things. That's it, I, I do. Like I do, that's it. You should see me with the vacuum cleaner in there. <laughs> it's really impressive work. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> Joanne, thank you so much and, yeah. and appreciate all the work and, and the, I, I know that while this is all experimental and theoretical, uh, that there some applied 
scientists and applied researchers are going to take this kind of brown, groundbreaking work that's been done and figure out how to you know solve some pretty big problems with it. So thank you. Well, and thank you, Mark, because you uh, laid the groundwork for us, okay? Mm -hmm. well, I appreciate you it. You're welcome. I also want to thank California Lutheran University School of Management and Tolman and Weicker Insurance Services and our podcasting partner, Full String Press. If you're interested in partnering with our podcast, drop us a note, partner at 805connect.com. And Patrick, the person who's yep. listened through this and they're still laughing. Thank you. Uh, what could they do to help us on the show? Well, besides uh, rate, right, review, you know, the standards of, of letting us know what we're doing right and what we're doing wrong. Um, there, there is a, there has got to be a young person in your life out there oh, right now who uh, has a dream that, that technology cannot keep up with yet, uh, uh, like Joanne's from 30 years ago. And so uh, I want you to encourage that dream and push them forward. Uh, and don't let impossible slow them down. And uh, maybe let them listen to this conversation. So go find a young person uh, that is looking for some inspiration uh, and potentially uh, helps their drive push them forward by letting them listen to the show. You know, I wrote that one down. Don't let impossible slow you down. Patrick, that was great. I'm good, I'm good at t-shirts. You are excellent at t-shirts. I would love to hear from you if you've got an idea for a t-shirt or you've got an idea for a guest. As you know, the show is completely 100% your ideas of interesting people you run into and you drop us notes. I love that. Send me a line, mark at 805connect.com. And thank you so much. And until next time, this is Mark Sylvester, your host for 805 Conversations.